What a profound truth that is that God is a good Father. And our identity is, is rooted in who He is and His love for us rather than what we think we are or what we love, but rather it's His love for us that, that makes us and calls us to Himself and gives us that opportunity to be a child of His. You know, this morning we're, we're going to continue our focus on who Christ is, the Messiah, the one that, that was promised from the Old Testament that would come and would be the realization of all the promises that that God put forth in the Old Testament for those who would be His people. And so if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which, is, which can be found on page 596 in the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you of the context of this passage. Israel, the northern kingdom, is in a very unstable position. Assyria to the north has gained great strength and the threat of invasion has increased. Judah, the southern kingdom, even though they're not as threatened by Assyria as Israel, they're experiencing some uncertainty that comes with leadership transition. And in the midst of this uncertainty, God speaks to Isaiah and gives Isaiah a promise. And I wonder just today, even for us, how many of us are in the state of uncertainty and we want the Lord to give us a promise as well? You know, will, will everything be okay? God, are you who you say you are? Can you do what you say you're going to do? And I think that's what Isaiah was feeling. Israel was feeling. Judah was feeling. And God speaks to Isaiah, gives him a promise. And this promise that God gives Isaiah is not a new promise, but one that falls in line with God's promise from the beginning of the Scripture, which tells us that God is making a people for Himself. And so this promise falls in line with this. And all the Old Testament is built upon this promise. This promise of redemption, of forgiveness, of restoration. And what we see is all of, that, all of those promises find their fulfillment and realization in a person. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are looking for the one that will come and bring in the kingdom of God. Will bring in a kingdom of peace and human flourishing. That's what they looked for. And that's what God promised to send. And it's in this line with the promise that God speaks to Isaiah in the midst of uncertainty. And he, he tells Isaiah more about the one that is to come. This great king. The one that will fulfill the promise. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 where we read, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now over the past few weeks, we've looked at those first two titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And we found that this one that God would send, and we know that person to be Jesus Christ, this one that God would send would be a Wonderful Counselor. He would have divine plans, supernatural plans. He would be about the kingdom of God. And he would be the mighty God, God in the flesh. Now this morning we're going to look at that third title. God tells Isaiah that the Messiah will be an everlasting father. And this is a very interesting title when you think about it. 
you know, when God says to Isaiah, this one that will come will be an everlasting father. And as, at first glance, you may think, well, that's kind of confusing. Because isn't Jesus the Son of God? So how could Jesus, the Son of God, be the everlasting Father? Well, I want to give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, he said, We must not suppose that we shall understand Him at a glance, talking about Jesus. We must not suppose that we shall understand Him at a glance. A look will save the soul, but patient meditation alone can fill the mind with the knowledge of the Savior. And so a look will save the soul. You don't need to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity and all that God is doing through Jesus Christ. You simply need to look to Him by faith for the forgiveness of your sin, and it can save your soul. But Spurgeon says, but upon further meditation, your mind will be filled with information about this one who is to come, this Jesus, this Messiah that Isaiah speaks about. So here, when, when Isaiah is saying that this Messiah, this king, this coming king will be the everlasting father, I don't believe Isaiah is using the word father to describe the triune nature of God, but rather I think he's using the word father to describe how the deliverer, the Messiah, this king will relate to his people. And so, in other words, in the Godhead there is father, son, and spirit, Three distinct persons, yet there is one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. There are three distinct persons in one divine essence or nature. Three persons, one God. And historically, this is what the church has referred to as the Trinity. And so when we read that the Messiah is an everlasting Father... I don't believe Isaiah is confusing the persons of the Trinity within the Trinity, but rather he's using the Father to describe some other aspect of the Messiah's role. And just stick with me here. In this passage, we see God describing what kind of king he will be. He will be a wonderful counselor. He will be the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this title, Everlasting Father, speaks to the extent And the nature of his reign. And so God says to Isaiah that the Messiah will will reign like a father. And his reign will be forever. And that's why some translations even translate this title. Father forever. His reign will be forever. And his reign will be paternal. It will be qualified by this fatherly role. And so, as we look at this title, Everlasting Father, it's keeping with the pattern. If you notice, we have some compound words in these titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and now Everlasting Father. And so what I want to do is tackle the word Father. Let's look at that first. And then we'll dive into the adjective Everlasting and see what is meant by that. So let's first look at the word Father. When I say the word Father, what comes to your mind? Most likely, what is coming into your mind is a person. And it's probably your father. And this is the most popular way we use this word. When you think of a father, you think of someone who fathers a child. You're in the family, you have the mother, the child, and the father. That's how we use this term usually. However, this term can have uh, more uses than just that one. And let me just give you an example. 
One way we use the word father is to describe the founder of something. For example, who is the father of our country? I would say, well, George Washington. Or who is the, the father of the Constitution? James Madison. Who is the father of philosophy? You may say, well, Socrates. In other words, you have this term father, and it's used to describe someone that has made something known or well known. And so we tribute the founding to them. Or, you know, who's the father of Apple computers? You'd say, well, Steve Jobs. You know, he's the one who founded it. It originated with him. You know, he's the, he's the father of that idea. And the Bible uses this word father in this way as well. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, this is what we read. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, who was the father of all who play the lyre and, and pipe. And as some of you know, the Georgia Baptists have a men's choir, and Bob's a part of that, that is called the Sons of Jubal. The idea is Jubal is the father of music. He's the one who is the father of those who have musical talent. So needless to say, Jubal is not my father. <laughs> Bob's father, not mine. I must be the other guy. I don't know. I just missed out on that whole genetic line. But the idea here is Jubal's the father of music. We also see this, this type of usage in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verses 39 through 44, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people here, a group of Jews, and they answered him, these Jewish people answered back to Jesus and said in verse 39 of John 8, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Jesus calls the devil the father of lies and Jesus uses the word father to describe the origin of a kind of life. Okay, he uses this term father to describe an origin of a type of life. Listen to what he says again in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. 
I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And I highlight this passage because you see here Jesus contrasting two types of lives. One life embraces Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the one that was promised in Isaiah chapter 9. The one sent from God. The one that puts us in a right relationship with God if we turn to Him by faith. So the person that embraces Jesus for who He is and seeks to do what Jesus said to do, this is the first type of life. This person is what we would call a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is the the founder of this type of life. He's the father of this type of life. He's the one who founded it and made it possible. He's the realization of those promises in the Old Testament that give access to to you and I to the Father God, to, to the kingdom of God. So he, in a sense, is the father of the faith. The writer of the Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews, puts it this way in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Listen to how he he puts it. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is life number one. One that embraces Jesus as the one sent by God, the Messiah. Jesus contrasts this life with life number two. And this is a life that rejects Jesus as the Messiah. And I know you're probably thinking, well, Ron, that seems very dogmatic. That seems, that seems very dogmatic, but... But according to Jesus, if you read this passage, I think it's pretty clear that according to Jesus, when you reject the truth of God, the idea of rejecting the truth of God, that flows from the devil. Okay? So there's a contrast. Two types of lives. One that embraced the truth of God. One that rejects it. And as much as our culture and our world, and even our churches may want to do away with this, Jesus is saying there is a divide. There are two types of people, two types of lives that flow from two different fathers. Let me me illustrate it this way. Have you ever seen a sign that said, you know, you're crossing the continental divide? I was in Colorado and up in the Rocky Mountains and I saw this sign. I'm crossing... The Continental Divide. Well, the Continental Divide is a, is a, is a line. It's, you know, I guess, I mean, I doubt you can draw a specific line, but it's a general line from the Bering Strait in Alaska all the way down to the Strait of Magellan in South America. And it's a hydrological divide, which means when water falls, when rain falls or rivers flow, it's either going to go one way or the other. The continental divide. So if it falls on the west, which would actually be the west for you, (laughs) the west, 
It's going to flow into the Pacific Ocean. But if it falls on the east, it will flow into the Atlantic Ocean. It can't flow in both oceans. It's either one way or the other. It flows this way or it flows that way. And to a greater degree, Jesus is this type of divide. You know, if God is your father, then you'll embrace Jesus as the Messiah, as the one sent from God to conquer sin and death through his life, his death, his resurrection. And if your father is the devil, then you will not embrace Jesus as the way and the truth and the life and the only way to God. This is Jesus' statement. He said, you know, these types of lives flow from a source. And I believe this is what Isaiah was saying when he pronounced that the coming king would be an everlasting father. He is going to be a father in the sense that he is going to be the realization of the promise of God that he will uh, produce a type of life. He will produce a door for you to walk through into the kingdom of God. He is the door. And Jesus even uh, says that about himself. That he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And so Jesus is, is the one. He's the founder of the faith. And this realization of the promise of redemption is in him. Which means we need to wrestle with the question. You know, who is my father? Because we all know even our biological fathers. We share some traits with them. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here is that you share some traits here who your father is. And you can tell how you relate to Jesus. Do you does your heart run to him or does your heart run from him? And does your heart accept him or does your heart reject him? You know which is it? It's either on the one side of the divide or the other. You can't have it both ways. So have you embraced Jesus as your everlasting father, the author and perfecter of your faith? Because he's the only one that can make you alive spiritually. That's what's clearly taught in Scripture. He's the one who brings about life, spiritual life. And he's the one who gives us eternal life in the kingdom of God. So this is what it means to be a founder or a father. I think that's what Isaiah is getting at when he refers to the Messiah as the the Father. So now let's look at that adjective. Everlasting. Okay, Jesus is everlasting. Now some take this to mean that Jesus is eternal. Which would be correct. I mean Jesus is eternal in the sense that the Son of God has existed from, from all eternity. And will exist for all eternity. However, I think this passage, when, when, I, when Isaiah is using the term everlasting, everlasting Father... I think he's using this term everlasting or forever in a narrower sense in that he's describing the way this king will reign. Because the whole passage of Isaiah 9, if you read it, I think you'll see he's talking about a king. The government will be on his shoulders. He will sit on the throne of David. His reign will have no end. I mean, it's a very kingly description. And I think Isaiah is saying this king will reign forever. And this doesn't deny the eternal existence of the Son, which I would affirm. But I think what Isaiah is specifically talking about is that this king, he will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. So what is the 
significance of, of forever? Well, it depends on what forever describes, right? Because there are some things that we just don't want to go on forever. You may think you don't want this sermon to go on forever. I don't know. But there are some things we don't want to go on forever. For example, we don't want sickness to go on forever. We don't want hatred to go on forever or betrayal. You know, we, we don't want lying and cheating and death to go on forever. I mean, who wants that? No one wants that to go on forever and ever and ever. So forever can be a great thing, a wonderful thing, if it describes certain things, but not those things I just mentioned. However, there are some things that we do want to go on forever, right? I mean, we want love to go on forever. We want friendship to go on forever. We want justice and beauty and goodness and life to go on forever. And what Isaiah is telling everyone that is that in order for this to happen, for those characteristics, those good characteristics to go on forever, we need a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, king, this prince of peace, if that's going to continue on forever. And this is what we read in the New Testament when, when the Apostle John catches a vision of the resurrected Christ reigning in heaven in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. This is what he records. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So John catches a glimpse of the ruling and reigning Christ. Who is reigning in heaven and his kingdom. From what we can read in the scripture and we see around the world. His kingdom is expanding into the hearts of of men and women and children all across the globe. But there's something very unique about this kingdom that Jesus is the king of. And you think about how does this kingdom expand? And what's interesting is the way his kingdom expands is by voluntary surrender. Whereas the kingdom of man oftentimes expands by force. And even other religions use the sword to expand their quote-unquote kingdom. But the kingdom of God does not work that way. The kingdom of God does not expand by force, but by voluntary surrender. And if you are a Christian, that is why you are a Christian, because you voluntarily surrendered your life to Christ, who is the King. Voluntarily. In other words, there is not a person in the kingdom of God who doesn't want to be there. In other words, there is not a follower of Jesus that doesn't want to follow Him. Because it's not by manipulation or force or oppression. It's voluntary. You, it's like a marriage. You know, when, you, when you marry someone, I mean ideally, you do it because you want to. It's voluntary. You want to do it. And that's what the kingdom of God is made up of. People, men, women, children who want to know God, 
who want their sin forgiven, who want to be alive spiritually, who want to live forever with God, who want love and friendship and justice and beauty and righteousness and goodness to continue on forever and ever and ever. And that's, that's what we want. That's the kingdom of God. But something is unique in that Jesus came and ushered in that kingdom. He inaugurated that kingdom. And yet we have a window here where the kingdom is both expanding and yet at the same time you have the kingdom of man and you have, I can't think of a better way to put it, but you have both heaven and hell existing in one place. In the sense that if you are in the kingdom of God, this world is the closest you will get to hell. And if you are not a part of the kingdom of God, then this world is the closest that you will get to heaven. Or the kingdom of God. And so this life is full of good and bad, ups and downs, encouragement, disappointment. That's life right now. This is the life we live in. It's, it's this in-between stage where Christ came and inaugurated His kingdom and He will come again to complete it or consummate it. And you have this window of opportunity where you and I can voluntarily, voluntarily surrender and be part of the kingdom of God. That's why the church exists. To proclaim this type of kingdom. So people can have the opportunity to know God. And live forever with God. And so this world is a mixed bag. And it's filled with both good and bad. And that's life. And it's going to be challenging at times. But I want to leave you with this. Imagine that someone takes you to a party. And if you're in Christ, this should be an encouragement to you. Imagine someone takes you to a party. A lot of parties may be going on around Christmas, you know. Someone takes you to a party. You see a few friends there. You know, you, you, you enjoy a couple good conversations, a little laughter, some decent appetizers. The party's all right, but you kind of keep hoping it'll get better. You ever been to a place like this, a little party like this? Maybe it's going to get better. Let's just give it a little more time. Suddenly your friend comes to you and says, well, I need to take you home. And you're thinking, oh, I got to leave the party already? I was hoping it was going to get better. It's not a very good party. It was, I'm thinking it was going to get better, but all right. I, you know, you're my ride. I have, to, I have to go with you. So you leave disappointed because no one wants to leave the party early. Right? But you have to. And your friend drops you off at your house. And as you approach the door, you're feeling alone. You know, you're feeling kind of sorry for yourself. And as you open the door and reach for the light switch, you sense people, or at least somebody's there in your home. And your heart, you know, jumps into your throat. You flip on the light, and then tons of people are in there, and they yell, surprise! And you realize, your friends have all come together, and they have set this huge party, this awesome party, for you. And your favorite things are there. Barbecued ribs... Pecan pie, eggnog, maybe, I don't know if it's something you like. I like it. So it'd probably be there. 
And you have friends there, all your favorite friends, all the people you've known and loved. The table's full. It's a feast. It's a great party. You recognize the guests, people you haven't seen in a long time. And then people start trickling in from that other party you were at early, the lame party. That wasn't really great. It was okay, but not great. They start coming to the party one by one. And it turns out to be the real party. This is the real deal party. And the encouragement for you, Christian, is that this life is the first party. There's some good appetizer, pretty good, but not great. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. But then when Jesus returns, he will have the real party. He will have the real party. And that's what helps us to persevere in this party, in this life. That is our hope. The kingdom of God is in fact in good hands because the king reigns as an everlasting father. And as we sing in Handel's Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord, that is our hope that you are reigning now and you will reign forever and ever. And we are so thankful for this window that you've given all of us to voluntarily surrender our lives to You. Lord, and You know this life is full of ups and downs, good and bad, encouragement, disappointment. But it's the hope that You have given us the the promises in Your Word that You reign in heaven and that You will return and You will make all things new. And that is our hope. In Jesus' name, Amen.